Well, according to Jesus, uh, the worst of human traits when it comes to faith in Christ, when it comes to love for God, to obedience to His Word, is indifference, is lukewarmness. Jesus said of the church in Laodicea, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you from my mouth. Strong words by the risen Christ. Jonathan Edwards, in his book, uh, Religious Affections, um, said the following, If we not be in good earnest in religion, and he uses religion here as a term describing one's walk of faith, if one is not in good earnest in religion and our wills and our inclinations be not strongly exercised, we are nothing. The things of religion are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercise of our heart to their nature and importance unless they be lively and powerful. In nothing is vigor in the actings of our inclinations so requisite as in religion. And in nothing is lukewarmness so odious. Now, the language may be a little bit hard to follow, but he goes on to say that really our affections are the springs of our actions. Um, that when we, when we take love and hate and hope and fear and anger and uh, real uh, affectionate desire out of the world, then really nothing will happen in the world. There will be no action uh, people will not uh, move themselves or motivate themselves to do anything. He says it's the affections of a, of a covetous man that pursue him or, or moves him to pursue greater profits. It is the affections of an ambitious man that sets himself to pursue worldly glory. And it's the affections of a, what he calls a voluptuous man, a man given to sensual pleasure, to spur him on into the pursuit of it. Likewise, in matters of faith, it is our affections which gives rise to our actions. And when we have doctrinal knowledge on speculation only, without it touching our affections, we will not be moved to action in matters of faith and love and hope and trust and obedience. And we would have not been engaged in the business of religion, as he would put it. Simply speaking, is when it comes to life of faith, you are what you love. You do what you love. If you love Christ, then you will wholeheartedly seek fellowship with Him. If you love Christ, you would gladly obey His commandments. But if you have received the knowledge of Christ, if you have the revelation of God through His Word, and it leaves you unaffected, unmoved, indifferent, lukewarm, then that is perhaps a sign that you do not quite believe yet what you have heard and what you have received. And remember, people, unbelief is not passive. As R. Kent Hughes says, unbelief is a position involving as much faith as belief. 
Unbelief is as strongly committed to its view of God, its view of the world, its view of the word, than faith believes or, or belief believes. <laughs> unbelief is, the op- is not the opposite, sorry, unbelief is the opposite of faith. It is not the absence of faith. Unbelief is the firm faith that for all practical purposes, God does not exist, God does not care, God is not actively involved in my life. Unbelief is the firm faith that God's word is not truth, that he does not know what is best for me. And as you can imagine, unbelief can be found or be seen in in all kinds of ways, even the subtle and sly ways. And it's this morning from our text that I want to lift out to you two subtle features of unbelief that are not readily recognized and therefore extremely dangerous. The author of Hebrew exhorts us that we should pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we would not drift away from it. And later on, that's in Hebrews 2, and later on in Hebrews 3, he says, Take care, brethren, that there uh, there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm, until the end. And so, Grace Bible Fellowship, this morning, the Word of God is going to confront us. It is going to confront us straight up, directly. And I don't know your heart. I don't see your heart. But God does. And this message today is is not to condemn you. This message today is to exhort you, is to plead with you, is to warn you against the deceitfulness of unbelief so that you will not drift away from what you have received, but instead turn to Christ. Trust Him, believe Him, obey Him. And so this week we will look at really the features and fate of unbelief. And then next week we will look, uh, our, our study this week comes from Matthew 11, verse 16 to 24. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. Uh, and next week we will look at the last few verses of chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, looking at the choice and call of Christ. And so let us read verse uh, 16 uh, to 24 in Matthew 11. I will read verse 15 as well. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. 
Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let me pray. Father, we come, Lord, this morning and ask that you would speak to us through the ministry of your word, that your spirit would apply your word to each one of us, Lord, where we are at. Lord, I pray that you would grant us this morning faith, faith to believe. Lord, that our faith would be quickened into action so that we may believe and and live a life of faith that is pleasing to you. And Lord, if you found this morning in our hearts that we have been harboring unbelief, unbelief in perhaps we confess you, Lord, but we don't follow your word because we do not believe it is the best for us. Forgive us, Lord. And prepare us now to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. And so really the features of of unbelief this morning is first of all fault finding and secondly indifference. And so verse 15 says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to other children. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that is a very appropriate ending to the previous pericope, but also an extending uh, introduction to what is to follow, urging us to listen. Hear what I'm about to say, says Jesus. And then he turned his attention away from the prophet John to the people before him. It is always so much easier to look at the faults of others and the shortcomings of others than to look at ourselves. And so Jesus confronts, confronted the crowd with their own unbelief. And so he asked, what, with what shall I compare this generation? And he answers really his own question with a short parable taken from really everyday life. Children in the marketplace. You know, children who run around and play while the parents were going about doing their shopping or trading. Um, the marketplace served really as, as a gathering place for a city or a village uh, where business would be conducted. They would buy and sell goods. They would formalize contracts. They would discuss the issues of the day. They may sort counsel from the elders there, and they would make public uh, major decisions. And yet Jesus here pictures a group of children unusually sitting in the marketplace. Now, if you know kids, that, that is unusual. Uh, we're not talking here about eye kids with their iPads. We're talking about real kids, uh, normal kids. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, and kids that would normally run around when allowed to play with other kids. Yet 
here we find them sitting in the marketplace. And Jesus' parable, the kids are sitting, they are passive, they are not moving, they are not playing. Because no matter what game is suggested to them, others found fault with the game. They did not want to play that game. And so some suggested, let's play a game of charades, a, a game of pretend. So we played the flute and you did not dance. Really a, a, a reference to the idea that let's play wedding, um, where, we're there, where there's music and dancing associated with such a, an occasion. Maybe let's do the horror, which is the Jewish dance that they usually dance at, at weddings where they would lift up the newlyweds and all the friends and family would dance in circles around them. Now, I'm not sure if the horror was present back in Jesus' day, but you get the idea. Playing music and dancing was, was, what was what was suggested that we play. Let's play wedding. And the other said, nah, that's stupid. We don't want to play that. And then the others say, well, let's, we sang a dirge for you, but you did not mourn. And so, well, if you don't want to play wedding, maybe we can play funeral. Uh, funerals were also a very loud and lively uh, affair in those days as, as professional mourners. Uh, would, would be hired to wail and cry as the procession moves to the grave. And the other said, nah, we don't want to play that. That's, that's just boring. And so the thrust of this parable was that the kids did nothing. They found fault with every suggestion. They were passive, unmoved disinterested. And Jesus applied this parable of the fault-finding children of, to the generation of his day. Those who, regardless of how and through whom the message of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven came to them, calling them to repent and believe, they did not respond. They did not take action. They did nothing for finding fault with the messengers. Instead of heeding the message, instead of responding to the call of re to repent, they dismissed the message on the grounds that the messengers were flawed in their eyes. Verse 18, for John, Jesus applied this now and says that John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. John, of course, well, we know is a very serious, or was a very serious man, a very devoted man, a, an ascetic man who never drank any wine. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his womb, Luke 1.15 tells us. And he was a man who lived a fiercely devoted life, an unconventional life for his day. He lived in the Judean wilderness in solitude, wearing unfashionable clothes. Uh, the, the, the clothes of a prophet, a, a coarse camel hair coat with a leather belt. And he was fasting from normal food, living only on locusts and honey, forsaking really the creature comforts of the day. And he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, preaching a message of fire and brimstone, calling his listeners to repentance, for the judgment of the coming king is near. But the people dismiss the message, his confronting message, because of his eccentric life. Saying, that's a bit much. 
that's, that's maybe a bit OTT. He probably has a, a, a demon or being led by a demon of some kind. He's so weird. And so they refused to listen to the truth of the message, for they found fault with the messenger. They did not receive him who they acknowledged to be a prophet in the name of a prophet, as we saw earlier in Matthew 10, 41, Jesus forewarned that would happen. And so they did nothing. They did not respond. They did not believe. They did not repent, finding fault, not with the message, but with the messenger. He's too serious, too intense. We today are, we are more laid back, more relaxed, less formal, not so demanding. And so the Son of Man, verse 19 tells, came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus, using his favorite description of himself, the Son of Man, we, which we saw previously as a reference to the Messiah taken from Daniel 7, now the Son of Man came with none of the eccentricities of John the Baptist. He did not live a reclusive life. He was not a ascetic. He ate and drank as normal people do. He wore normal clothes. And he went about from city to city and from town to town. He was constantly surrounded by people. He loved them. He touched them. He called their children to him. He healed them. He fed them. He blessed them with words of profound wisdom. He went to their weddings, he even helped with the catering of one in the wedding of Cana, where he changed water into wine, signifying and displaying his glory and, and the transforming nature of his ministry. And he attended Matthew's banquet in celebration of his salvation, dining with the tax collectors and sinners. And the people found fault with that too, labeled him a glutton and a drunkard. Both serious sins under the Mosaic law. However, there is no evidence whatsoever that Jesus was ever guilty of such sins. These were just excuses. Faults found by those confronted by his message. For Jesus went from city to city, preaching the same message as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near but in a decidedly different way. But the people did not want to believe that message of God. They refused John's message and they refused Jesus' message. They refused to repent and believe. And not being able to find fault with the message, they found fault with the messenger. And so seeking to escape dealing with their own sin, they found fault in the messenger. He did not meet his, their expectations. And so they slandered him. They said, he can't be the Christ because he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Insinuating that he was like them, unclean, defiled, unacceptable, unholy. We can't listen to someone. That's not a holy man speaking to us. The words of truth. So they slandered him. They slandered his person. They refused to receive a righteous man in the name of a righteous man. Going back again to chapter 10. Yet, the last part of, last part of verse 19 said, Yes, wisdom is vindicated by our deeds. 
In Luke 7.35, the parallel passage, wisdom is vindicated by our children, really meaning the same thing, and that is that the wise ways of the Lord will be proved to be wise by the results that it, provo- uh, that it produces. And so some did repent at the preaching of John the Baptist and were baptized in, 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 uh, um, in repentance. The stoic message of John, or the stoic John the Baptist with his harsh message. And, and some did repent and believe in Jesus. Through his ministry of preaching in the, the, of the gospel truth, uh, his righteous living, his warm and compassionate, kind and forgiving, gentle and joyful Demeanor, joyful over every sinner that came to repentance. And so the generation of John and Jesus was an unbelieving generation. They were a fault-finding generation. Finding fault in the messengers to justify not heeding the message. Not responding to the message. Not to act on the message and to deal with their sin. I'm wondering. <laughs> and today, Lord, this generation is pretty much the same. We live in a similar generation. The Lord sends out His messengers, different messengers with different personalities, different gifts, different abilities. He sends out Introverts and extroverts, he sends out those who are great speakers and can move a crowd to tears with their words. And he sends out those who struggle to speak and are not eloquent. He sends out those who have great intellectual abilities, who can preach a precise, well-reasoned, powerful message of the gospel and why it is imperative to believe it. And he sends out those who may be poorer in intellect but rich in common sense and practical know-how. He sends out those who are more reserved, studious and thoughtful, who spend much time in solitude and study and preparation. And he sends out those who are people-orientated, outgoing, bubbly, talkative, winsome. Some write great books and others have ministries on radio and television. However, there are always those who reject the message or refuse to listen what is being preached Refuse to receive the message of God because they found or find fault with the messenger. He is too loud. He is too dry. He preaches too long. His messages are too short. He preached too lofty, too intellectual. Oh no, he's too simple and superficial. He's too serious. He's too lighthearted. There has always been those who would deflect the message of God, the Word of God penetrating their heart, confronting their sin, exposing their unbelief by finding fault with the messenger, by finding fault with some of the service. And those who refuse to act on the sound and true preaching of the gospel, the true and accurate preaching of the Word of God, because they... Reject that because they find fault with the messenger. They are masking their unbelief. They are seeking not to deal with the living and active word of God. The God who judges our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. 
But fault finding, finding fault with preachers, with gospel messengers, is an excuse. Sorry. Yeah, as an excuse not to respond to, in, in repentance and faith, not to trust and obey, is a feature of unbelief. And it's not all the features, but it is one feature, and it's a subtle feature. And because it's so subtle, it's an incredibly dangerous one, because it's not easily recognized. It's not easily identified. And so the first feature of unbelief we find in this piece, uh, uh, passage is that of fault finding. And the second one is indifference. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. <clears throat> Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Then, really, the then in this verse is a, serves as a definitive marker in the gospel of, of, jo, of Matthew. You can actually draw a line there because before that, Jesus was preaching his gospel freely and openly uh, and the people respond in unbelief. They did not Repent. And from that moment on, Jesus denounced them for their unbelief. They did not receive John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, and they did not receive Jesus as the Christ and his message. For we read, they did nothing, they did not repent. And so he denounced them for their unbelief expressed through indifference, for being lukewarm, unmoved by his message and his miracles. Woe to you. Really, woe is an, is an interjection of either grief or indignation. And here I think it was spoken in indignation, but not for a moment should we not think that Jesus was grieved when he spoke this woe. A woe is a, is a call, is a warning of coming judgment, a, a warning against retribution that is coming because of sin. And so woe to you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, the cities in which most of the miracles of Jesus were performed. Chorazin was, was about four miles north of, of Capernaum. Um, Apart from this verse in the Bible and the parallel passage in Luke, there's the only time it occurs in the Bible. Bethsaida, was, the Aramaic means the house of fishermen or the house of fish, was located on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. That was the birthplace of, of Peter, Andrew, and Philip, and possibly others as well, including James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
And it is no more today. Capernaum was the place where Jesus lived, the place where he based his ministry from. And together, these three cities became known as, known as the Evangelical Triangle, where the evangel, the good news of the kingdom, was most prolifically proclaimed. And you see, these people, the people from these cities, had the greatest privilege and the, the best opportunity to meet Jesus to hear him preach, to witness his miracles, to observe his life. They had been given much light as to the identity of Christ. But with such great privilege and opportunity comes great accountability and responsibility. And Jesus compared these relatively insignificant towns with well-known pagan cities, Tyrus, Sidon, Sodom, who were renowned in Bible history for their worldly wisdom and wealth, for their sin and their vice, for their idolatry and, and debauchery. Chorazin and Bethsaida are compared to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were Gentile cities just northwest up there on the, on the Mediterranean coast. And throughout the... Uh, um, Really, the ancient world, they, they were known to be powerful cities uh, in maritime commercial centers, really. And they became proverbial for pagan people, um, condemned by the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel for their Baal worship and their arrogance in their, that they have in their power and their wisdom and their wealth, fully deserving God's judgment. The the prophet Ezekiel, in particular, denounced the king of Tyre for his proud and self-exaltation, describing it in terms that can only be described or attributed to Satan in Ezekiel 28. And Jesus said, if the miracles performed in Chorazin and Bethsaida, if they were performed in Tyre and Sidon, these sinful cities would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Of course, sackcloth is just a, uh, really it became a symbol, that, that expression was a symbol of sorrow and repentance. The sackcloth was a, a rough uh, cloth that was woven from, from goats or camel's hair that was worn against the skin to really remind them and, uh, of, of, of their sorrow and, and their rejection of, of, of comfort and ease while mourning or while repenting, ashes really symbolized loss, which they sprinkled over their head or they rolled in it. Therefore, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for them. That is an incredible statement. The day of judgment depicts the day when God executes His judgment. And there were, of course, many days of judgment throughout the history of Israel where God judged them or other nations. But here it refers to that end-time judgment, the day of judgment, that day when the great and small would stand before the throne of God and the books will be open, the books of life and the book of life. And in it is written every deed that man has done. Every careless word that we have uttered.
Now, Capernaum is here compared to Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah to this day is associated with gross immorality. Sodomy really describes the sexual sin, the homosexual sexual sin. And Sodom was a wicked city, rife with sexual perversion, a city destroyed by God because he could not find ten righteous people in it, Genesis 19 tells us. So he rained down fire and brimstone, leaving that whole region burnt and scarred, barren and desolate to this day. Because Sodom is situated just on the, on near, the near the, the Dead Sea. And Jesus denounced Capernaum, saying their sin was more gross than Sodom's. And their pride as detestable as Satan's. Because he used the same words that Isaiah used in denouncing the king of Babylon, which again was a depiction of Satan, or the satanic-inspired king of Babylon, if you, if you like. In Isaiah 14, we read verse, verse 13, But you say in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. And followed by verse 15, Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Now Capernaum is said that it will not ascend to heaven, but it will descend into Hades. Hades is the Greek word for the, for the, Greek, for the Hebrew word Sheol, which really describes the, the place of death. The, the abode of the death, the grave, but often in the New Testament, Hades was also used to describe hell, the place of suffering where uh, the unbelief, the ungodly were kept in agony until the final day of judgment. Now, if the miracles performed in Capernaum were performed in Sodom, it would not have been destroyed, Jesus said, implying they would have, had, they would have repented. It will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for Capernaum. Again, an incredible statement if we understand the sinfulness of those cities. So what was the sin of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum that, was, that deserved them to be counted worse than, than these notoriously evil and pagan cities? It was the sin of unbelief, expressed through indifference, the sin of doing nothing, the sin of apathy in the light of the marvelous revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus here sets himself forth as the highest and clearest of all revelations that God has made to the world. He asserts that the revelation of him, the knowledge of his person, his character, his words, and his works ought to move men to repentance before God more than any other knowledge on earth, more than the knowledge of God's righteousness in the light of our sinfulness, more than the knowledge of God's divine justice and punishment in the light of our guilt. There is no brighter light no greater revelation than the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 tells us. 
Nothing will break a man, nothing will bow a man down into godly sorrow and repentance than a glimpse of the sweet perfection of Jesus Christ. God incarnate. More than that, that, that beauty of His perfect holiness in the second Adam. Isaiah understood what that meant when he saw the Lord high and lifted up on the throne in heaven with his train, the train of his robe filling the temple and the seraphim singing, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And immediately exclaimed, what? Woe is me, for I am undone. I live, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And when we, with eyes of faith, perceive the holiness of Christ, the most appropriate thing for us to do is to fall down in repentance before Him. No brighter light than the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ can be found on earth. He is the full revelation of God to man. And Jesus walked the streets of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He lived in minister in the town of Capernaum to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. We read that in Matthew 4, 15 and 16. They were given great light. More light than ever before about Christ. About the Lord Jesus. And they did nothing. They were indifferent, unmoved, lukewarm. In Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, if God had sent this light, His light, to Tyre, Sidon and Sodom, they would have repented. They would have believed in me. But you did nothing. You did not rise up in protest or opposition. You did not bow down in repentance and faith. You did nothing. You are like the children of the parable who did not want to play. You were indifferent, apathetic, unmoved by the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Now people... As Sodom is to Capernaum, so Capernaum is to Perth. As Tyre and Sidon are to Chorazin and Bethsaida, so Chorazin and Bethsaida is to Sydney, is to Melbourne, is to Canberra, is to every city where the gospel has been freely proclaimed. 
The cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum received far greater light, far greater revelation than those ancient pagan cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. But please, let us note that at that time, in Christ's ministry, He was only revealed to them as a divine messenger, as a miracle worker, as a man who called himself by a dubious name, the Son of Man. Yet that revelation was far greater, that light was far more than what was given to those ancient pagan cities. But the light that they had was still very dim. It was but, but the first light of dawn, if you like. Now we in Perth, we in Australia, in any place and nation where the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ have been proclaimed, The light we have today is like the blazing sun of, at noon in comparison with what they received. We have the full revelation of Christ. We know Him as the righteous Christ, as the crucified Christ, as the risen Christ, as the ascended Christ. We know Him as the Lord who is the Spirit. We have seen, we have heard, we have read of the power of Him to save men and women The power to transform them. 20 centuries of revelation. 20 centuries of light. 20 centuries of had the works which have been done in us. Been done to Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. They would have remained to this day. They would have repented. They would have believed. What about us? What about you? What about me? We who have a Bible in every room and and come to church and listen to preaching every Sunday. We have the gospel preached every Sunday. We have the scriptures read every Sunday. We have the word preached and expounded every Sunday. We who have been witness to the power of the Spirit applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to save sinners, to change sinners to saints and saints to servants of Christ. How do you, how do we respond to the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ? How do you respond to the living and active word of God? How do you respond to the convicting, equipping, and comforting power of the Holy Spirit? Woe to you if you have done nothing about the sin in your life. Woe to you if you have done nothing about or with the spiritual gifts that he has given you. Woe to you if you have done nothing to advance his mission. If you have done nothing, if you have remained indifferent, unmoved, lukewarm. Woe to you if you have not repented in faith. Woe to you if you do not worship Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Woe to you if you are disinterested in His person, unmoved by His love, unconcerned for His mission, and uninvolved in His church. Woe to you if you are indifferent, if you are lukewarm, 
unmoved. Because he will spit us out of his mouth. And people, if any of this is true of you, woe to you because your unbelief has found you out. Fault-finding and indifference are features of unbelief. Not the only features, but the most subtle and therefore the most dangerous because it often goes unnoticed. It often hides in plain sight. And so people, if you hear the voice of God, if you see His light today, if, you, if the Spirit of God is touching your heart, your conscience now, today, the worst thing that you can do is nothing. The greatest evil that you can perform is to be unmoved. Is to say, ah, oh, that's nice. He was quite excited today. And go on as before. People, if you find the features of unbelief lurking in the shadows of your soul, repent and believe. Repent and believe and you will live. Because the fate of unbelief is judgment. The severest of judgments await those who have basked in the light of the glory of God, in the face of Christ, and did nothing. Were unmoved, was indifferent to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This brings us to the fate of unbelief which is judgment. And I will run through this briefly and perhaps come back to this next week again. But people, the judgment of God is beautiful. It is holy. It is righteous. It is just. And here in verses 20 to 24, we, we find a few features of God's judgment. First of all, that we can know that His judgment is certain. There is a day set for His judgment. When God will judge every word and every deed of every man, and no one will escape. And those who think they may have gotten away with it, even the smallest of sins in this life will be rudely awakened when it is read out aloud on that final day from the book's that is recorded in heaven. And they will have to give an accounting for their sin. And woe is anyone who is not found in Christ on that day. If your name is not written in His book of life. If you have not received and accepted His payment for your sin. Because surely it will be demanded from you. In fullness of God's wrath. That is fact. That is truth. Because God said so. 
His judgment is also just. A single sin, a single transgression against our Lord separates us from His holiness and is enough to condemn us for all eternity. Yet, God's judgment comes to us in degrees. Because it will be more tolerable for the cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom than the cities of Chorus and Bethsaida and Capernaum. You see, the wickedness of those pagan cities were renowned. They were famous, or rather infamous, for their evil, their hideous idolatry, their rampant greed, their gross immorality. Now, his judgment, or probably best understood as his punishment, is related to the level to which you give yourself over to your sin in this life. The level uh, related to how much you sin against your God-given conscience. Now, conscience, we know, is informed by the Word of God. So the more you know of God, the more light you have received, the more you have been given, the more is going to be required of you. Therefore, unbelief is the worst of sins. And the sin of unbelief expressed through indifference in the eyes of the God deserved the harshest of punishment in the deepest recesses of hell. For you have been given light. You have heard of Christ. You have heard the gospel. You have been given the light of the gospel of the glory of, of God in the face of Christ. But if that leaves you lukewarm, unmoved, indifferent, if you exchange the truth of God in unbelief for a truth of your own making, then you trample His grace. Then you slap away His saving hand that reaches down to deliver you out of the sin-stenched bog of your miserable existence. God's judgment is just. And with light comes responsibility, comes accountability. The more light the greater the responsibility. And the greater the sin when we exchange darkness in favor of that light. God's judgment is also omniscient. It's all-knowing. God knows all that there is to know. He knows everything about everything. He knows our hearts. He knows our attitudes. He knows our inclinations of our heart. Hebrews 4 tells us, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And God's judgment is based on his omniscience, his knowledge of all we are and all we've done. But more than that, this passage teaches us that God's omniscience extends to include what certain theologians call middle knowledge. That is that God knows what we will do, how we will react, what we will choose, even when the circumstances are different than what has transpired. And so we knew, we read here that God knew those cities would have responded had they received the light that Coruscant, Bethsaida, and Capernaum received. He said they would have repented. 
He said they would have remained. If they had received the candlelight strength of the revelation that the cities in Christ's day received, they would have repented. And so we can, we can rest assured that there is no one who will be judged unfairly. Even those who, when we say, well, they never received the gospel. Nobody ever took the gospel to them. Well, his omniscience, if God judged them guilty, then we can know that even if they had received the gospel, they would not have responded to the gospel. God's judgment is certain, it is just, it is based on His omniscience, and it is sovereign. This is, a, this is a difficult one for us. We who are fallen creatures, limited, finite, with sin-state reasoning, and now we are seeking to understand the mind of a holy and infinite, perfect God. And just as God knew that Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom would have repented had they received the same level of revelation from God as the generation of Jesus' day, God in His sovereign plan and purposes did not give them that light. He did not reveal them at that time for that purpose. God acting according to His sovereign plan and purposes did not give them His light. He did not show them mercy, but purpose that His power would be displayed in judgment of them and that His name would through that be proclaimed in the earth. And as you wrestle with that thought, let me remind you of the words of Paul in Romans 9 when he spoke about God's sovereign choices in salvation so that we don't, because of unbelief, turn around and find fault with God. Romans 9, if you want to, you can turn there. Romans 9 verse 14 reads, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Or the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? 
And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. People, God will judge all unbelief. We need to make sure we understand that in unbelief, we're talking about faith in Christ. If we are in Christ, then there is no condemnation for us. But we need to be careful and listen to what Hebrews says, because we may profess faith in Christ. But when we turn around and we ignore His Word, when we ignore what He tells us, when we ignore the revelation that He gives to us, the understanding He gives us in the Scriptures, it is unbelief. Because we think we know better than God. He does not care for me, as He says. So God will judge all unbelief. God's judgment, as I said, is beautiful. It's holy and righteous and perfect. And in this passage, it's revealed as certain, as just, as based on his omniscience and his sovereign will. And woe to you for finding fault with his will and his ways. The feature of unbelief is fault-finding and indifference. And the fate of unbelief is just is judgment. And if you find that in your heart today, let me again implore you, turn to Christ. Confess your unbelief. Ask Him to help your unbelief. Confess, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And turn away from it. Place your trust in Christ and evidence your faith through obedience to His Word. To whom much is given, much will be required. And the light of God's Word has been, sh has been shone in our hearts and our lives. How will we respond? I pray it is to repent and to believe, to trust, and to obey. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, that you're, for your word. And Lord, we, there's so many thoughts that may go through our minds at this moment in time. I pray, Father, that you would, through your spirit, apply and minister your word to each individual personally. Lord, you know our hearts. Lord, you know the sin which entangles us so easily, which, which trips us up so readily. Lord, that which we seem to struggle with and cannot overcome. Lord, perhaps it is because of unbelief. Help us to believe and trust your word. Trust Christ in the fullness of the revelation that he is from you that we would not seek to appease you with our good works, but to trust in Christ. That we would not seek to win favor with you by our good works, but trust 
in the full and completed work of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.